This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy, an apologetics ministry designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the Academy offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the Academy goes live, and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we are going to be dealing with day six of creation. Day six of creation. And what we want to look at is some common arguments that are often uh, leveled against uh, the idea of ordinary literal days. And in this particular case, we want to look at the case that's often made against day number six. Um, various arguments are leveled against this, such that uh, the day couldn't be a literal day because of certain time constraints or uh, because of certain um, uncomfortable-sounding ideas that uh, at least to some, that we must understand about day six in order for it to be an ordinary day. And so we're going to talk about all of those things uh, today for just a little while. I want to real quick kind of echo um, the intro music a little bit and just say that we're excited about uh, the way that things are coming together for the Creation Academy. And so if you have not yet joined the wait list for that, I encourage you to uh, drop what you're doing and uh, and go join the wait list right now. Uh, I've got a link right there um, in the show notes, or you can just go to www.jointca.co and get on the wait list. Uh, and, and it's not some, uh, you know, exclusive wait list that only certain people are going to be able to get into it or anything once once we go live with the website, that's not our intent at all. Uh, we just want to, a couple of things, really, we want to gauge interest. We want to see how interested people are in it. And so uh, you can show us your interest, and that will allow us to know whether we should move forward with the project. Uh, I'm going to just be very honest with you right now. Um, I have less, I have not aggressively uh, promoted the Creation Academy other than doing it in the podcast and 
things of that nature. I've not done any kind of other advertising for it. Uh, but even so, my waitlist signups are a little less than I was hoping they would be uh, at this point in the game. I'm, I'm kind of getting to the point where I'm going to have to start doing some of the very heavy uh, lifting on producing the actual content uh, for the Creation Academy. And so I was hoping at this point to have a little bit more, uh, a little bit more interest shown in it. So uh, if you are interested in it at all, please head over to jointca.co, enter your name and your email address in there to get on the wait list. And that's just simply so I can keep you updated with what's going on so that I can let you know for sure what our launch date is going to be so that when it's time and you feel that you're ready, you can go and, and sign up uh, and actually purchase a subscription. Again, it's only going to be $6 and 99 cents a month. Uh, it's a steal. Uh, we're planning on really producing some high-quality content. I've got uh, a, a relationship with a local videographer here in town who I think is going to um, be able to help me work with this and, and to make some exciting content for you guys. So um, in any sense, if, if that's something that you are interested in, I, I would highly encourage you to sign up on that wait list so we know that uh, what we're doing is a good thing. Now, real quick before we get into the content for today, if you're new to this podcast, I want to encourage you, and there will be a link also in the show notes for this, but I want to encourage you to visit my website, which is just steveshram.com, and then I want you to put slash defend at the end of it, steveshram.com slash defend. Go there and uh, sign up for our free email course, Defend Your Faith with Confidence. Um, it's a, a six-lesson email course. You'll get it over the course of six days. It's got four lessons technically, but it's a six-day course. It's got an intro and a conclusion. And so I encourage you to go sign up for that. If you're new to this podcast, that will introduce you not only to our ministry, some of the beliefs of our ministry, um, but will uh, hopefully deliver on its promise to help you defend your faith with confidence. And uh, it, it, it gives you what I call the four answers you need to know um, to answer the toughest objections to Christianity. And I, I, re I mean, not certainly not saying that it's the you know magic eight ball or anything like that. Um, it's not the one-two punch. But you will be able to use the information that you learn there, especially if you're new to the world of, of defending your faith, what we call apologetics. If you're new to that, this course, this email course, will really, really help you uh, to be able uh, to defend your faith better. Now, of course, there, there will be emails that follow that. Uh, we, uh, from time to time, send out emails about things that are going on, about new content. Uh, I try not to bug anybody too much with things that are for sale or anything like that. Usually just uh, send emails about new articles that we've written or podcasts we've recorded and things of that nature. Um, and sometimes there's a special treat or two. So uh, that's what we do there. So stevetram.com slash defend. I want to encourage you to get signed up uh, for that. And that will uh, really, I think, give you some helpful resources and some good free uh, content to help you uh, be able to defend your faith better. So let's get right into uh, the discussion that we want to have this week about day uh, six of creation. Now, there are multiple uh, things on 
each of the different days that sometimes critics of this view, whether they be Christians or, or non-Christians, usually Christians are going to point to some of these objections. Um, the skeptical uh, object, objections are usually more of a scientific nature, of course, but there are textual objections that oftentimes come from uh, within the camp of Christianity who just hold other views about Genesis. So it, it, it's going to be um, uh, objections of that nature uh, that we're looking at today. And so the different days of creation, um, some of them... Uh, Day one, for example, uh, day day six, of course, day seven. These are days that there are certain certain markers in the text that sometimes um, folks will point to to try to argue for the view that these days could not have been literal, ordinary um, solar days. And uh, I don't think any of their arguments succeed on this point, um, but it's still worth looking at uh, and certainly worth us exploring uh, to try to see if maybe they, the arguments uh, hold any water or how we should uh, respond to them. So uh, obviously here, if you're again, if you're just just now joining, if you're new to the podcast here, we hold to uh, six day, um, what I call young age uh, creationism, that is we believe the earth, the universe, etc., are uh, a little under 6,000, or a little over, excuse me, 6,000 years old. And if that sounds new to you, if that sounds uh, interesting to you, maybe something you've not heard before, well, then all I can say is welcome aboard. And uh, that's the kind of thing you're going to learn about here, why why we think that um, th- that's what the Bible teaches, why we think that science is also quite I- indicative of this. And uh, so that's what we teach here, and that's what we advocate for here. There are other views. There are views that say that uh, Genesis is actually teaching a very old age for the universe. There are views that say that Genesis is not uh, teaching any age for the universe. Uh, there are those who even would ar- argue that that Genesis and the whole Bible does teach a young age for the universe, but that uh, Genesis 1 um, is not necessarily meant to be understood in any sort of scientific way. It's merely a symbolic or, or a... Uh, a a literary device kind of kind of text that is meant to act strictly as a polemic against the uh, Egyptians. So there's a lot there, many different views of Genesis. But here we hold to young age um, creationism, and we do hold to what is called commonly the concordist view. That is, we we simply believe that there is good reasons to um, to to think that accurate science and history were being taught by the Bible. And so we, we advocate for that and we give, we give what we think are good reasons for those, for those views. So let's talk about day six a little bit. What, what, quite a bit, let's go ahead and grant this argument. Quite a bit happens on uh, day six of creation. And if you look at uh, the actual details, the way the text is situated, it kind of looks like, and there are those who would argue against this, but it kind of looks like that a lot of chapter two, most of chapter two, is a zooming in on the events of day number 
6. Uh, there are those who try to argue against this view that say that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are completely separate creation accounts, and they have a contradictory order of things, contradictory details, but this certainly is not the um, is not the clearest understanding to me, just looking at it face value. It doesn't really make any sense that there would be uh, two creation accounts back-to-back that were 100% contradictory in the first two chapters of the Bible. Uh, I think we could probably give God a little bit more credit than that, uh, or Moses. We could probably give him a little bit more um, credit than that. Another interesting uh, thing to consider uh, is the fact that in Hebrew, uh, it's very, very common for there to be a uh, kind of a general statement of the way things work. Um, And then maybe the next uh, portion of the literature would be a little bit more specific rendering. And so it seems to follow that kind of a pattern. Uh, In Genesis 1, we kind of get the general overview. In Genesis 2, we get uh, kind of the the bird's eye view, or I guess I should say the the zooming in rather of the important, most important part of the creation account, which is of course um, the apex of God's creation, uh, human beings. Human beings are made in the image of God, and so based on that, we would conclude that it makes sense that God would zoom in to. Um, the creation of humans in chapter 2 as it appears that he has done. So if we if we understand the text that way, and by the way, there's even some, and I, I'm not totally decided on this because it's definitely a matter of um, a, opinion between, between different scholars, but uh, some would say that the same kind of thing happens with Genesis 1. Genesis 1-1 is the general overview, and then the rest of the chapter um, explains those events that happened, and then, of course, you move into Genesis 2, and you kind of see that same pattern. So I don't know if that's um, the case or not in Genesis 1. I I don't really have an opinion on that. I lean towards that not being the case uh, because of the way that um, the language seems to be structured. It seems to me that everything, everything from Genesis one one to one three, uh, can be seen as day one. Uh, so anyway, that's just my opinion on that. But we're not really talking about that today. We're talking about day six. So that's what we need to talk about. So uh, quite a bit happens on on that day. Uh, much more, as I was, as I started to say, than than happens on the other days. Uh, generally, the other days are you know, uh, two or three tasks uh, at most uh, that God has supernaturally brought into to bear. And it doesn't appear that, you know, any of those would cause any problems. But now when you get to day six, uh, there's a lot that goes on on that day. And of course, um, with chapter two of of Genesis, spending so much time on it and zooming right into those day six events, you kind of get a little bit more detail as to what's actually going on. And a lot happens. Um, So I wrote down this list um, of the things that happen on day six. So we've got the creation of cattle, beasts, and creeping things. Now, cattle um, would be uh, the domesticable um, um, animals. Excuse me. Um, So if, if you could domesticate it if i mean like a dog would be a good example animals like that okay uh, were created on 
day six. And so this was an animal that was able to be domesticated. All right, uh, beasts. So this would be, uh, you know, your your buffalo, your bison, things of that nature. Uh, and then creeping things. This could include reptiles and such. It certainly includes insects and things like that. Um, but more likely also includes things like reptiles and other small animals like that. Maybe even some rodents. Okay, then we've got the creation of man from the dust of the earth. And we actually uh, should take note of this here, that also with the creation of the cattle, the beasts, and the creeping things, um, this is not an ex nihilo creation. And what I mean by that, this is not a creation out of nothing. Uh, it's not as if these animals just... Uh, popped into existence out of nothingness. There was an ex nihilo creation event in the beginning, and there's good reason, most are uncontested to believe, that uh, most of the creation was not ex nihilo. It was made, uh, formed and fashioned from pre-existing materials from the ex nihilo event, okay? And so, uh, for instance, in Genesis 124, it certainly says that the cattle, beasts, the creeping things, um, that the earth was going to bring them forth. Now, of course, we know uh, that uh, cattle, beasts, and creeping things don't grow on trees, so the earth is not going to bring them forth in the same way that the earth is going to bring forth um, uh, trees and plant life. However, there's a sense in which it is the same way because this is a supernatural act of God. And I'm going to argue that the initial growth of plants and things like that, that this was a supernatural act of God. This was not, uh, we should not see this in light of how we see these processes happening today. Uh, I don't think that's what is meant uh, to be conveyed here. So, um, so there's that. There's the creation of man from the dust of the earth. God plants an art, a garden, uh, excuse me, in Eden, and he puts man there. God brings Adam, the livestock, uh, beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, at least the basic kinds of these, which we'll talk about, and Adam names them. And then God creates woman from the side of man. Uh, and I didn't write this down, but you could add also that uh, Adam kind of rejoices in that creation of, of woman and begins to to spend some time with her. So uh, we have a lot going on. That is no argument. Um, For one day, uh, this is a lot seemingly to have happened. And so we need to understand uh, how this kind of thing could be possible. How could we fit all those events into one day? We're talking about creating uh, animals, planting gardens, naming all of the animals, uh, creating uh, a woman from the side of man. I mean, quite a bit going on. Okay, Um, so many want to use uh, day six as direct evidence that the days mentioned in Genesis could not be ordinary solar days. In other words, they'll, they'll take this and say, if it's possible that day six is not an ordinary day, that it's possible that the other days are not either. And, of course, then they'll bring in some different arguments about day one, about day seven, and they'll start to build a case from that. So first, let me give you a positive case to the contrary. I want to give you um, 
a, a quick uh, six-point textual case that says that we should treat the Genesis days in general as ordinary and therefore day six as well. So first of all, there is no change uh, in cadence from day five to day six. In other words, um, whatever day six is, it must mean the same thing as day five, day four, etc. Uh, there's there's no the, the actual structure of things. When you look at the account uh, as it is given with the rest of the days in Genesis one one through two three, it there's no contest there. It, it it's the same. There's nothing about the textual cadence that should make us to question uh, if this day is going to be something different than the other days. Now, God closes out day six with the evening and morning as with the other days except for day seven, and declares that everything he had made was very good. So he closes out the day, um, expresses that evening and morning had taken place, signaling the end of the ordinary day, and then declares that everything he had made over the course of the last six days was very good. Um, This, according to Luther, Calvin, um, many other very important figures throughout church history, They've basically understood the phrase very good to mean uh, just about as close to perfect as you can get. Uh, Of course, we know that God is ultimate perfection, but this was God's very good creation. God, um, the, the creator of the universe, the God who hates sin, the God who created everything, uh, declared that this was very good. Uh, Hopefully you can grasp that just in virtue of who God is and the standard God holds and how God is a righteous judge. If you can understand all of those things and understand that he called this creation very good, you have to very seriously consider what sort of elements would be part of a very good creation. And so this, to me, is a is a, a solid argument um, against the idea of there being death uh, that was not a result of sin. God made a perfect creation, a very good creation that did not include death. It did not include the circle of life, as it were. All right, number three. The quantitative use of viactoles in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 suggests that this text should be understood as historical narrative, which in turn suggests that there is no mystery afoot concerning the length of these days, including Day six. Now, what I mean by that is uh, there are verb forms. Um, they're called preterites. Um, the vav consecutive is a very good example of this. That are found in Genesis one one through two three. That are characteristic of of historical narrative, um, yet virtually non-existent in in Hebrew poetry. Now, there is certainly um, this. Uh, the possibility of having this sort of thing in a uh, poetic account or in a non-literal account, but it's very, very rare. It's much more characteristic of narrative. And so um, a statistical analysis was carried out on these a few years ago uh, by a Hebrew scholar, Dr. Steve Boyd, um, and it was a statistical analysis carried out by using uh, these the the quantitative usage of these uh, vital and 
the actual model uh, that was developed around this was able to uh, predict whether a text was poetry or narrative, etc., with a degree of accuracy up to 95%, somewhere hovering between 85 and 95%. And when this was applied, and again, there's a lot to this, but 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 when this was applied to the text Genesis one one and two three, um, there was a ninety five percent confidence level that uh, that Genesis was ninety nine point six, I believe, percent uh, to be shown as narrative. So it was definitely um, on the high end of that scale. The um, the the it, it's very easy to see if you if you take and apply this model to different texts, it, it uh, is able to accurately show when um, a text is to be understood as uh, poetry versus narrative. And so, uncontested. I mean, this this passage, based on that analysis, um, should certainly be understood as narrative. So, uh, to me, then, this is a pretty good argument that should say that there there should be no reason to render this day as meaning something uh, non-literal uh, when the passage as a whole should be understood as uh, literal narrative. Um, okay, so uh, fourthly then, in the positive case, uh, Exodus 20, 11, uh, in that God himself dictates to Moses, uh, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, uh, the sea, and all that in them is. And rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, um, this is significant because this is not uh, just God inspiring the scriptures. This is God actually uh, speaking it to Moses. Now, I'm not saying that there that there's a difference between those things, such that. Um, Regular inspiration is not important, but um, there's a sense in which there's a bit more gravity here. Uh, to me, it seems, because you've got God actually speaking these words audibly uh, to Moses. Uh, God cannot cannot lie. He's not going to tell him something that he doesn't mean. Um, and I don't think that he's going to inspire Moses to mean day or to to say the word day if it doesn't just mean what a day does it's just it's not very generous to the text to to see something other than that uh, so anyway i think that's a good argument all right number 5 jesus references a day 6 event the creation of man and woman and declares that they were made from the beginning of creation this is in mark 10:6 and also in matthew 19 um, this must be taken to mean that there was uh, that this was accomplished near the beginning of the creation. Uh, it sounds ludicrous if the days are millions of years long, especially since Jewish culture in that time was almost unanimously agreed on the age of the earth. Many Jewish calendars from that time, Jewish writers from that time, um, esteemed the earth to be young. And so this was something that everybody knew. J- Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, the most, uh, the, the, the most religiously zealous, I guess you could say, uh, in that day. They would have known this. The fact that Jesus said this is significant, and the fact that he didn't mention a time period is significant because it assumes that they already understood and knew what the time period would be that he meant. So, 
I conclude from that that there are no lexical reasons to take day six as anything other than an ordinary solar day. Um, no reasons found in the text of Scripture itself. Okay, so then what does this mean for us? It means that any objections must therefore be based on subjective interpretive difficulties. Let me say that one more time just to be sure I'm clear. Any objections must therefore be placed or be based on subjective interpretive difficulties. So we're now going to floor, uh, explore a few of those which have been suggested. So here's a few of the objections. Uh, first of all, we've got too many events. Too many events. There's just too much going on on that day. And we talked about this just a little bit in the beginning. There is a lot going on. Um, but what's the story behind that? How do we make sense of that? Well, many argue that too many things had to take place on this day for it to be a 24-hour day. Just too many things. As a matter of fact, Hugh Ross has claimed that um, this uh, may have been weeks, um, months, or even years worth of activities. So we're going to address these claims kind of in a more specific fashion below. Uh, but on this point, I want to make two overall observations about there being too many events. All right. The first one is this. There's an underlying assumption of naturalistic procession in most of these objections. And here's what I mean by that. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, the textual parameters clearly convey uh, the authorial intent. All right. What the authors meant to put out. Uh, the, 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 uh, to me, it's a pretty clear case from a textual standpoint. Now there are those who certainly disagree with that. Um, but, uh, as I'm looking at it, I just, by my conscience, I can't see anything different. Um, what I see, uh, appears to be the most, um, clear explanation of things. All right. So, um, the text gives parameters that clearly convey what the authors meant to say. Uh, so, objections are based on assumptions from outside of the lexical structure, such as modern science, current experience, etc. Um, and we're going to see that. I don't want to give you an example here because we're going to see those come to bear, and I'll kind of try to point that out to you, that that's what I was talking about. Um, and then the second thing here is that there's actually very little for Adam to undertake on this day. Very, very little, which we're going to talk about. Um, many things happen, but they are creative acts of God. Now, get what I'm saying here. Yes, there are a lot of events, but um, from a quantitative standpoint, Adam doesn't have that much to do. Now, sure, his events are significant. They are, they are um, um, qualitatively Okay, to use that word, uh, significant, but quantitatively, not that much. He didn't really do that much. God had quite a bit to do, but in the creation narrative, the general MO seems to be uh, of that mentioned in Psalm 33 9, which says this For he spake and it was done, for he commanded and it stood fast. Uh, when God, when, when God commands something, it happens. Uh, this is something that is very, very rare in our human experience. Um, every single time, every single time God speaks 
a commandment. Whatever it is, whether it be what we understand to be an inanimate object or whether it be an animal or a human, it responds in obedience uh, to God. Um, when God forces it to, let me put it to you that way. Uh, sure, God can. We can resist God. We can. We cannot do what God wants us to do. That's called disobedience. Um, but we're talking about a creation that stands in subjection to God. God gave us that free will. That's a limitation that He puts in because He wants our obedience to be based on our love for him okay so 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 that's not what i mean but what i mean by that is if god wanted something to happen he speaks whatever he wills it gets done if it's by god's decree it happens i can assure you of that and so that seems to be um how how things happened during creation week and so we need to understand that for god to have created adam eve and uh the cattle beasts and creeping things all on day six, this is really not a problem at all for God. God simply fashions all these things uh, from the elements uh, of, of the earth. And of course, uh, this is not a one-by-one -one thing. God doesn't take them in and create the cattle. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't... Likely this is all happening at the same time. We're very close to around the same time. Uh, this is a supernatural process. We need to unhinge and not be afraid of this. We need to unhinge these naturalistic assumptions from the creation account and start to realize that creation out of nothing and then the creation of life, these are so supernatural, miraculous. We need to not import assumptions of naturalism into them, whether knowingly or unknowingly. So let's look at some of these uh, in a little bit more robust detail. Let's first take a look at the claim that there were just too many animals. Uh, too many animals. Of course, what we're dealing with here is the naming. Did Adam really have time to name all of these animals? All right, so irrespective of biological nuance, uh, so whether you believe in... Uh, Ross's general fixity of species understanding, uh, whether you believe in naturalistic evolution or theistic evolution, regardless. The old age assumption here is that Adam would have had to name millions of animal species. Ultimately, this is what would have had to happen in their minds. When they object to Adam having to name the animals, this is what they're automatically thinking of, naming millions of animal species. Now this, this would be an impossible task, an impossible task. And so, rightly so, they reject it on that basis. Uh, they say this could not possibly happen. But again, this is not evaluating a view fairly. That is, when you evaluate a view and you are not evaluating the view on the merits of its own claims, you, you can't. You can't use uh, things that are not claimed to be true about the view in order to refute the view. And so here's what I mean by that. Um, this problem is absolutely imaginary for young earth creationists. It really is. It really is. 
And there are many factors that contribute to that. So we'll look at a few of those. First of all, the only animals that Adam had to name were the cat, uh, the cattle, which again is animals that are capable of domestication. The beasts of the field, which is certain wild animals that are incapable of domestication in the fowls of the air. So this immediately removes insects, reptiles, sea creatures, etc. All right, so already we have whittled down the candle, all right, quite a bit. We don't have near the amount of animals that uh, that many want to import into this particular scene. Okay, now God, number two here, brought these animals directly to Adam, specifically for the purpose of naming them. Genesis 2.19. Okay, so the suggestion um, that many have made, I've heard it very recently, um, that Adam had to find these animals, observe their behavior, meticulously name each one of them, it's just unwarranted. It's contrary to the text. It's not what the text says. God brought these animals one by one to Adam for him to name. Okay, now the next thing that we need to see is that these? And by the way, let, let me just let me just say that God did not did not bring uh, an elephant to to Adam, and Adam sit there and mull over what you know, observe its behavior for hours and hours on end. There's just no suggestion of that in the text. Now, I suppose there's no suggestion to the contrary, uh, other than the fact that the day should be constrained. Uh, to the textual parameters, which means it should be seen as an ordinary day. I see no reason to extend the length of this day at all, based on that. Adam uh, was brought the animals directly by God. Adam sees the animal, he gives it a name, and we're on our way. Okay, thirdly, kinds, not species. Kinds, not species. We need to think in terms of biblical categories, and the species is not a biblical category, not in the slightest. Um, the Bible deals with kinds. Okay. Um, in biblical terms, the created kind or the Brahmin is the most accurate form of classification. So we suggest that the kinds God created in the beginning are probably quite unlike many of the species we see today and much less uh, genetically um, spread apart or diverse. So, um, for example, Adam would not have had to name beagles, Great Danes, etc., but rather a dog-like ancestor, probably comparable to uh, some form of wolf. And so don't miss what I'm saying there. Um, actually, from a genetic standpoint, they would be more um, uh, diverse in that they have a larger gene pool to, to work with. Um, but as that gene pool has uh, devolved and mutated and changed over time. See, what we actually witness is more of a devolution, not an evolution, because we see that where there was once a, a, a you know a wolf-like ancestor, for example, uh, that maybe had all of the genes necessary as um, different genes are lost and become recessive and different things like that, we, we, we mutate and we form different, um, what may be understood as species in our... Um, in our common uh, vernacular today, uh, but again, they're still within the same kind of animal, okay? And so we've got dog kinds. It's the same as a, a, a wolf, that sort of thing. So that's what Adam had to name. Adam did not have to name um, chihuahuas, Great Danes, and poodles. 
he had to name one um, dog-like ancestor, probably some form of, of wolf. All right, so we need to consider that. So again, we see this number really starting to dwindle. Now, in virtue of what I mentioned above, um, Grig, that's Russell Grig, I think rightly argues a few things. First of all, there were very likely only a few dozen kinds of cattle. In Hebrew, this is Bahima uh, for Adam to name. Just a few dozen kinds of cattle because you got to think about um, the animals that were able to be domesticated. I mean, how many of those kinds would have there possibly been? Uh, you know, I mean, you've got a dog. You've got, uh, I don't even know that you could count, I, I suppose you'd count the, the, the cat kind or and the dog kind if you I mean you wouldn't call it that probably but um, but you could probably count those since they were animals that um, are able to be domesticated um, and such like that so we'll probably have a few dozen kinds uh, of those that of course they have changed into the various species that we see today but again dealing with the original parents dealing with the kinds there's probably only a few dozen all right. Um, now, he also says that Collier's Encyclopedia lists a total of 163 families of all living, fossil, and extinct birds. Now, this article was written a little while ago, so that, that may be a little different now. Um, this was written right at the turn of the century, I believe. So it's not that old, but uh, nevertheless. All right. So now this means that if Adam uh, named only one representing each such modern group to which the same general name could be applied, there could have been fewer than a couple of hundred birds involved. So here we've got a few dozen birds, or excuse me, we have a few dozen um, kinds of cattle or um, animals that can be domesticated, and now we've got a couple hundred birds or less. All right, he also says this, uh, the Hebrew word sadeh, Translated field in several Bible versions has the meaning of a flat, open plain. So the term beast of the field occurs several times in the Old Testament. These are all in a post-fall situation, that is, after sin had entered the world. They included animals that move in when humans move out, Exodus 23:29, wild asses, Psalm 104:11, dragons and owls, Isaiah 43:20. Animals that prey on sheep, Ezekiel 34, 8, and a range of carnivores, Ezekiel 39, 17. As the condition of sin did not apply when Adam named the animals, um, the most we can take from these verses is an indication of the variety of animals involved. Taking all these factors into account, particularly the matter of habitat, um, the beasts of the fields named were probably those animals which live today in open country and venture close to human habitation. Not named were probably those animals which live exclusively in forest, jungles, mountains, wetlands, deserts, etc. So from this he argues that a generous figure would allow for the naming of around 100,000 of this type, even though it could really be in the low hundreds. Now, we should also assume, as one more observation, that Adam, in his pre-fall condition, had a superior intellect and a built-in memory databank from God. Now, um, even if we don't assume this, though, now, I think we can assume that. I think we can assume that 
Adam understood language. He didn't have to learn these things. When uh, God told Adam that he would surely die um, if if he ate from the fruit uh, of, of the tree uh, of, of good and evil, um, I think he understood what it meant to die, even though death had not been in the world yet. I, I, this is totally reasonable to me, that God created Adam with a degree of maturity mentally as well as physically. This makes sense. But even if we don't, assume this, it still would have only taken between one and four hours to accomplish this. And this was Adam's main task for the day. So this is no time in a 24-hour day uh, for Adam. Uh, this is, this is uh, you know, this is an afternoon. This is, you know, Adam eats lunch and then goes and names the animals for a few hours. I mean, this is, honest to goodness, this is not nearly the big deal that many have made out of it. So the most powerful argument, in the opinion of many, um, for a long sixth day completely fails when you give the text a fair reading and when you crucify those evolutionary presuppositions that you have out of it. All right. Uh, ironically, though, now this is interesting. On the other hand, this creates a problem uh, for advocates of old age creationism and theistic evolutionism, namely this. Uh, if Adam was to give all of these animals names, what about the millions of species which have gone extinct? According to conventional dating methods, before Adam was ever created. Genesis 2.20 explicitly claims that Adam named all of the living creatures in the above-mentioned categories, including dragons, which would be dinosaurs. Adam could not have possibly done this if the earth was millions of years old. Just couldn't have happened. So uh, this is, uh, I think, a very good argument to say that this would not be um, not be possible. So not only is it not a problem for the young age view, but it's actually a problem for the old age view. All right, how much too much work? You know, we're going to go, the, these others are, are not nearly as robust of objections, so we'll be able to move through them a little faster. Again, that's the main one. That was Adam's main task for the day, and that's the main one that uh, that critics really hone in on because they've really got this presupposition of, of using um, our current classification system because they really don't understand um, biblical classification. And that, it's hard to blame them for that, because there are many creationists um, who don't understand uh, biblical uh, animal classification. And so we're still working on that. And so um, I'm here just to be a megaphone for those who are working on that. So uh, there's a lot to that. But again, um, at the most, I mean, we're, we're, we're somewhere, we're probably somewhere just under a thousand animals uh, for having to name, maybe a little over, uh, if we're being generous, somewhere between a thousand to probably 1,500 animals for Adam to name that day, even though I think that that's a high number. Okay, so too much work. So we had too many animals, now we have too much work. So what about garden tending? So some have claimed that Adam would have needed uh, time during this day to tend uh, the garden. But again, we're only talking about an ordinary day. Uh, surely everything could go one day without being tended. And there's no suggestion in the text that this even had to be done. Uh, Sarfati notes that Genesis 2.15 actually states the purpose of Adam in the garden. Not that he actually worked for a long time 
before the other events. Rather, the passage indicates that as soon as Adam was given instructions about eating, God paraded the land vertebrates he had formed um, for Adam to name. So simple. It's just not there. What about animal observation? And again, I mentioned this briefly above, but I'm going to reiterate my exact point from above, that God brought these animals directly to Adam specifically for the purpose of naming them uh, in Genesis 2.19. So the suggestion uh, that Adam had to find the animals, observe their behavior, and meticulously name each one is unwarranted and contrary, actually, to the text. It's just it's not there. It's just a figure of imagination. Now, uh, I didn't write this down, but but some have argued that uh, because Adam had this superior intellect, um, after having just been first created, he would take extra time to make sure that he got exactly the name right. Um, look, God wanted to know what Adam wanted to call the animals. Literally. he That's what the text says. He brought them to Adam to see what he would name them. It's quite uneventful. Uh, there is no observing these for millions of years. God brings them, or for, for even for days at a time. Th- th- there's none of that. Adam was brought the animals. God brought the animals uh, to Adam, and he looked at him. he gave it a name, and on to the next one. That's what the text seems to indicate. Okay, so uh, too much work. No, there wasn't too much work. The, 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 Adam didn't need to tend the garden on that day. Even if he needed to, let's just, for the sake of argument, if he needed to tend the garden, well, that's fine. He could attend the garden in the morning, name the animals in the afternoon, and did some final stuff on the garden before uh, later in the day. So anyway, so that's not a problem at all. Animal observation, I don't see any reason to import that into into the text, none whatsoever. And again, if he had that built-in memory, databank, etc., he would have already known, based on certain behaviors and things, what maybe he should call them. Okay, too much vegetation, too much vegetation. So many have suggested that the language God used to indicate the growth of trees, etc., um, suggests a long time period. So um, here's what Genesis 2.9, which is the verse in question, actually says. And out of the ground um, made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So this is what the verse says. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this, though. The trees are growing out of the ground. Now, this sounds normal. But in what sense uh, should we take this phrase, um, made the Lord God to grow? Remember, it says, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is present to or pleasant to the sight. So this seems to suggest something uh, miraculous. At the very least, um, it certainly warrants that interpretation. Uh, We could certainly understand that from it. Now, understood in light of the call and response nature of creation, um, as suggested by other scriptures, and as I mentioned above, it makes sense to propose that the trees grew um, in much the same way we experience a time-lapse video. Now, some have made fun of this suggestion, but I see no reason to render it impossible. Um, And I also see no reason to import naturalistic growth assumptions onto it. Uh, It's just not there. It's just not in the text. Um, whatever growth happened, according to the text, it happened in the context of a day. So what does tree growth look like 
in the course of a day. Well, I think it probably looks something like a time-lapse video. And this is creation. I don't think that's a problem. I think that's miraculous. Now, you, you can laugh at that if you want to, or you can think that that's unnatural if you want to, but I think if you do that, you're importing naturalism into the text, which is not how we should handle it. That's not a, the way to give the text a fair reading. Okay. Um, Sephardi noted on that point uh, that God is capable of making trees grow at the same rate as he turned water into wine and multiplied the loaves and fishes instantaneously. And hey, I agree with him there. Uh, the text makes no suggestion of a long period of time. And then finally, before we conclude, we have Adam's surgery and the creation of Eve. Adam's surgery and the creation of Eve. Uh, what about recovery time? Recovery time. So uh, what I think some desperate uh, are some desperate attempts uh, have been made to suggest that Adam needed time to recover uh, from surgery. Okay. But God performed this surgery. The text explicitly says he closed up Adam's flesh. Now here's the question. How? And I'm going to be a little bit facetious here. But did God use medical stitches or staples to close Adam's flesh up? Of course not. This is just silly. God had just finished crafting a perfect human being. Okay? He uses that template, so to speak, to create another. Um, could God have simply closed Adam, Adam back up to perfection? Uh, no recovery time? Of course he could. So which makes more sense? Uh, do we have, you know, we find Jesus healing instantaneously all throughout the New Testament. Are we to assume that God does this surgery on Adam in the very beginning and doesn't close him back up the right way or he messes up, he misses a stick? Come on. Uh, this to me just seems like grasping at straws. Adam did not need time to recover from surgery. All right. And then finally, what about this? At long last, at long last. Uh, so the suggestion has been made that the Hebrew um, hapaam should be translated something like finally or at long last or now at length. But it is more often translated to simply mean time. And you can see, I didn't write any down. There are numerous scriptural examples you could use to show this. Um, this... Uh, in other words, people want to say that this means that Adam has been waiting for, for eons and eons, or at least for uh, many, many years by this point, to, uh, to, to see Eve. But again, that's not what happened. Uh, it just means time. This is uh, what happened. So, um, also, it might be uh, beneficial to know that this is kind of a, a an insertion in the text of, of poetry at this point. This is a highly poetic element, and so we shouldn't understand anything that is said there um, literally in any sense uh, in terms of that, in terms of his reflecting on, on Eve. So that's what I have for you today. Now, it seems uh, to me uh, that any attempt to overthrow this idea of an ordinary sixth day fails on three important counts, and we'll kind of conclude with this. First of all, no lexical or otherwise textual arguments support a longer period of time. Uh, everything that we see seems to uh, constrict day six down to an ordinary type of day. 
Arguing for long ages, number two, uh, from silence in the text is both disingenuous and special pleading, uh, since many who do so would never accept such arguments from interlocutors on other matters. I mean, this is a complete argument from silence on their point on many of these points. And then finally, one must bring naturalistic assumptions to the table in order to challenge the plain meaning. But those naturalistic assumptions strain the text in ways that are impossible to reconcile, such as entire kinds of animals becoming extinct before Adam has a chance to name them. So again, not only do they uh, fail, uh, but they honestly are uh, self-refuting. All right. So thank you uh, for for tuning in with us this week. I hope that maybe gives you a a little bit of a better understanding about the events that happened on day six. Um, Why we certainly don't need to see them in any sort of naturalistic way. We can look at this with the supernatural kind of um, um, motif that uh, we should understand a creation account uh, with. Uh, of course, we understand that we have a supernatural worldview. We believe that uh, at one time there was a talking snake and a talking donkey. We believe that a virgin uh, gave birth to a baby named Jesus Christ around 2,000 years ago. And we believe that God created a universe supernaturally and didn't need to use the assumptions of naturalism uh, in doing so. All right. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you today. I want to say thank you for the ability to record this podcast. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to reach people with uh, the good news and the message of hope that you give, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you'd work on our hearts this week as we uh, attempt to live for you and witness for you and serve you. Lord, I pray that you'd allow for us to be bold uh, to... um, combat this uh, world. Lord, there's so many bad ideas and philosophies floating out there. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be strong, help us to be gracious in our conversations, and to be able to make an impact on the world for you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, thank you for joining me this week here on the Creation Academy. And uh, we will see you next week. Hey, don't forget to go to steveshram.com slash defend. If nothing else, get signed up for that free email course so you can get started defending your faith with confidence. And uh, and we'll send you some awesome free resources uh, along the way uh, as long as you're subscribed to that list. You can unsubscribe at any time, but I think we'll give you some, some helpful Um, some helpful information from time to time that could really help strengthen your faith and your walk with Christ at the same time and uh, especially in your witnessing opportunities. All right? Uh, God bless. Y'all have a great week. See you next time. Bye-bye.